Reggae Uprising podcast family and welcome to another episode. If you are fresh and new to Reggae Uprising podcast, it is all about connecting people of the African diaspora through wisdom, overstanding, inspirational stories, all backed by a soundtrack of sweet reggae music. Now, these podcasts go out every single Wednesday. So if you want to get all caught up on those previous episodes, all you need to do is go to daniel.co.uk. I will leave that link in the description for you. Also, just to give you more of an insight into the show, I have a new guest on every single week and they tell us their life stories, their heritage, um, about their specific works and they pick seven reggae tracks as the soundtrack to their life. So every single week it's completely fresh and new story, fresh and new wisdom that I hope will inspire you through your week and through your life. Now, as well as doing this podcast, as well as being your host, I'm also a conscious reggae singer-songwriter. So that means that I also do a second show, which is every single Monday called Reggae Uprising, where I sing a reggae tune for you, whether that be a cover tune of an artist that I find inspirational or it's an original tune of mine. It's just to start off the week on a Monday, every single Monday, with some high vibration. So again, if you want to subscribe and check out those shows, all you need to do is go to daniel.co.uk. Right, we're going to get started with this week's guest's first selection, which is Bam Bam, Toots and the Maytals. Yeah, can you hear that? of Sunrise Bakery, Errol Drummond. Greetings and welcome, Errol. Greetings, Sister Daniel. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for, you know, sparing your time and coming on the show and sharing your wisdom with us. Can you tell us why you picked that first selection we just heard? Well, um, I was born in Jamaica. Um, 
came to the UK as a 13-year-old. No, I was um, born during the time of our independence. Now, as you might know, Daniel, our independence was some 125 years after emancipation. And it was a period of great joy, something as a child we all look forward to. And following independence, you know, this great freedom um, and the rebirth, if you like, of, of, of a people, they introduced a thing, a thing called festivals song competition. Now, the very first winner of the festival song was the great Toots Hibbert, Toots and the Matels, who sadly passed away a couple of months ago. Um, so, you know, as a young child, probably eight, seven, eight years old, you know, we were singing Bam Bam every day, and we was also singing our new national anthem. So Bam Bam represents to me that rebirth of Jamaica as an independent country, an independent people, uh, a people with a new voice, you know, and um, a new song to sing, if you like. So Bam Bam was my choice. So you just touched on your heritage there. Can you tell us um, your explanation of your heritage so we can understand as people of the diaspora? I was born in um, a district called Brighton in Westmoreland. And um, I went to school, infant school in, in, in the next district, which was Belmont. And I went to um, Brighton Bluefields and Junior School. And after passing my scholarship, which is the equivalent of the 11 plus, I went to Manning's High School at the age of 11. Now, Manning's, uh, for those who don't know, is perhaps the second oldest school in Jamaica that is still going. It was built in 1738. And amazingly, I think the first black people went to Manning's in the 20th century. So it gives you an idea what kind of school it was. But, you know, it's, um, it's a school that I'm quite proud of and proud to have been a part of, even if it was only for two years before I came to the UK. Um, and I went to a school in Edgebaston um, following my, my arrival in Great Britain so back you know in 1967. The, you know the school that you just mentioned in Jamaica? Do you have any further knowledge about that school? Yeah, yeah, Brighton, Brighton, um, Brighton School, uh, sorry, Manning's High School. In, in Jamaica, you had a, 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 a group of old high schools, equivalent old grammar schools, and they were more or less built on the same ethos as, you know, the British public school. And I would imagine Manning's was built for the sons and daughters of the slave owners. Um, and obviously, they didn't accept white pupils, like I said, until the 20th century. Um, so <laughs> that gives you a, a, a feeling of, of, of how Jamaica was as a society. And, and you know, and and the the discrimination that existed between slaves, even after the end of slavery, you know, a hundred years after the end of slavery, or probably seventy-five years after the end of slavery, blacks still weren't allowed to go to some of these schools. Wow, wow! So the fact that your parents obviously were part of the Windrush generation, can you tell us more about their life? before they came to the UK and what they experienced when they actually arrived in the UK? Yeah, my, my parents, uh, my dad came here, uh, I think, what, about 1959. My mom, two years later. 
And um, of course, they're still very young people. My mom perhaps was in her early 20s. Um, my dad, like most, a lot of Caribbean men, um, went to America on, on a farm work experience, if you like, um, working either in the sugar cane plantation of America or um, picking oranges in places like Florida, uh, which at the, at the time you know, was a job to have. And, you know, people would um, welcome the opportunity of going abroad to work. And um, shortly after that, he came to the UK. Um, he worked for a company called Swan. They used to make stuff like kettles, etc., kitchenwares um, down at Spring Hill. Um, after a couple of years of working there, he realized that this was not for him and he wanted to branch out on his own. So he started uh, Sunrise Bakery in 1966 with a partner. Um, my mother, she went into nursing and became um, a district nurse uh, in the early 70s. Uh, like most um, black nurses, the opportunities in the, in the hospital was far and few between. So they either ended up um, working, going into midwifery, or they became district nurse. My mum was amongst the first crop of district nurses in the country, and I'm quite proud of her. Through the stories that they've told you about um, living in Jamaica, what was it that drew them? Can you explain the actual experience? I know we've heard it like from you know people as a whole, but what was their individual experience about being drawn to come over? What were their reasonings behind it? What happened, um, but after the war, um, quite a few Caribbean people actually came to Britain and, and fought during the war. Um, those who went back at the end of the war, some choose to come back. No, um, because Britain was more or less devastated, most of the major cities were just bombed out wrecks. Um, Britain actively recruited um, people from the Caribbean, and I think the slogan was, come and help rebuild the mother country. And many Caribbean people answered that call and came to the UK. And, um, you know, mainly from Barbados, Trinidad uh, and Jamaica, and they worked um, on the buses, on the, you know, the railway. Um, some even went as far north as Lancashire and worked in the cotton mills um, and in the factories of Birmingham and the Midlands. So, you know, um, there was lots of work. And of course, they were all enticed by the slogan that the streets of Britain is paved with gold. So they saw that as an opportunity to come work for six or seven years, make lots of money and then return home. Um, sadly, that never happened in most cases, as you know, most of them um, ended up in a cemetery somewhere in the UK. Uh, in the case of my parents, they were lucky enough to retire in 1999 and return to the Caribbean, to, to Jamaica rather, and I lived in the Montego Bay area. So did, did you ever have that conversation with your dad about what it was like? Like, obviously, the culture shock when he got over here and then any of the um, trials and tribulations he had to go through, obviously, before he started his own business? Well, well you know, um, one of the reasons he told me why, why they, 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 he chose to start his own business 
back in those days, um, and it carried on for many years, both for the black and the Asian um, immigrants, you find that, for example, if you work in a building site, you find the foreman would sometimes deduct a part of your wages, you know, and you couldn't complain. Obviously, he was the only person that you saw. And you complained to him, he could get rid of you or you could lose your job. So you had all these abuses going on. So hold on, sorry to sorry to cut in, but um, when he's deducting part of your wages, is there any explanation or he's just literally just taking money out of your wage packet? That's just for him, for his own back pocket. <laughs> no explanation needed, none was given. And of course, you know, you had no, you had no, no, no way to, of com- no way of complaining. Mm. And you must remember as well, back, back in those days, somewhere like Smithwick now, where the bakery is based. No, today, Smithwick is predominantly an Asian town. But back in the days of my period, back in the 1960s, Smithwick was one of the most racist places in the country. Um, in fact, Malcolm X, the great Malcolm X, actually visited Smithwick, and there was images of him and on Marshall Street in Smithwick, you know, helping to, to fight the prejudice that the immigrants was going through. You know, there were signs which you've more or less you probably you've heard of these signs on, on the, the window saying "Room to Let," no blacks, no Irish, and no dogs. Well, in Smithwick. During one of the elections in, in the 1960s, the headline in the newspaper was, if you want a nigger for a neighbour, vote Labour. And this is how blatant it was, and this is what they had to put up with. And even, even when I came as a child, you know, I, I saw a lot of that prejudice. You know, you, you would see it at school, you would see it on the buses, in daily lives, you know... Um, one of the things that we, we, the youngsters today might not appreciate, when you watch a football match today, a premiership football match, and you see all the black players, sometimes the team is on the pitch with 60, 70, 75% black. Now, when I was at school, back in about, I would say probably 1969, 70, we had two black players in the top division, um, a guy at West Ham by the name of Clyde Best and a guy at Leeds United by the name of Paul Reedy. Now, when one of the managers was asked and much of the day why there weren't any black players in, the, in football, he said blacks cannot play football. And when he was asked why, he said because we weren't fast enough, we weren't strong enough, and we weren't aggressive enough. Now, when the interviewer pointed out that as far back as he can remember, blacks have always won the 100 meters at the Olympics, um, the world heavyweight champion were all blacks, and were blacks for as far back as you could remember. So how could he make such a statement? And he said, Football is different. Football is a white man's game. And when he was asked, well, or it was pointed out to him that Pele of Brazil was reputedly the world's greatest footballer. 
and a guy by the name of Eusebio who played for Portugal but came from Mozambique was the second best footballer on the planet and they were both black. The guy said, well, Pele and Eusebio were freaks of nature. Remember that term, they were freaks of nature. Now, I remember going to the Albion, West Bromwich Albion, to watch Cyril Regis, Larry Cunningham, Brendan Batson, and Remy Moses play. And the joy of it, the sheer pride of seeing four black players on the pitch. And for the first time, West Bromwich came very close to winning the title that year with these great players. And, you know, going to the matches, there was a lot of us black guys who would congregate in the one corner of the stadium. And you could hear the abuse that these guys were suffering. I remember the one the one match, um, West Brom played Birmingham City, and I was sitting near to the Smithic and end where the um, City fans were congregated. And when you hear say five, six, seven, eight, ten thousand people shouting, who, 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 nigger, 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 who? I'm telling you, it is frightening. And you know, when Cyril Regis scored, he stood in front of them and he raised his arms in a victory sign. And he had to run because the amount of bananas that rained down on the pitch in front of him and that was what we had to put up with. And, you know, today, sadly, 40 years later, our young players are still putting up with this incredible nonsensical racial abuse by people that are just trying to entertain. They're trying to entertain them. And the standard of football that's been played by these guys is amongst the best I've ever seen. And, you know, I actually pointed out to a, a, a fan or a couple of fans at West Brom back in the 1970s that they were being really stupid. I said, not only are you abusing the black players that are here just to entertain you and is producing some of the most entertaining football that you have ever seen and skillful uh, masters of the craft that you've ever seen, but you then go to an Asian man shop and you spend your money buying bananas to come and throw the black guys. So I said, well, who is the idiot here? You know? And this is something that was lost on, on, a, on a lot of uh, ignorant football supporters. And, you know, sadly, we, we're two, three generations down and the, the behaviour is, is, it takes a different form. It isn't as overt as it was back in those days. It's more or less on social media now. But back in my day, going to a football match, you literally took your life in your hand. That's what it really was. And, you know, I've been to football matches like Derby County, you know, and, and had people up in the upper tier throwing darts down at me. You know? But, but the thing is, we were either mad or we just loved football so much, but we would still go to the match. 
<laughs> yeah, you can't let people stop you doing doing what you want to do, can you? Most definitely. We didn't back down. We just did not back down. <laughs> Love yeah. that. We want to talk more about um, your dad and how he set up his business. But first, we've got to squeeze in the reggae. So I want to move on to another selection of yours, which is Judge Dredd, Prince Buster. Why did you choose this selection? Yeah, for the independence, you know, we, we went through a period of turmoil in Jamaica. The first one, and even today, it makes no sense to me, was the police had a running battle for some reason against the Rastafarians. And every morning, you'd put the radio on, and the first news item was how many Rastamen were killed by police that night. And these were more or less basically unarmed people being shot by the police. But then we also had um, a rise in a new culture called rude boy culture. Now, this happened mainly in Kingston, where I'm from in the countryside. You know, I mean, in my district, we had we had one crime in many years, and it was somebody broke into my grandfather's shop and sold some flour, and that was that was talked about for years because we had no crime, so all the crime was more or less um, centralised in the Kingston area, but then we had a very clever song by Prince Buster, the great Prince Buster, one of the founding fathers of the music. And this song, not only did it capture the social mood at the time, but it also was done in a humorous way. And you know, for those of you who listen to the song Judge Dredd, it's a very funny song, but it also reflected the reality of the time as it was in those early days following independence. Okay, here we go with Judge Dredd, Prince Buster. Order. Now my court is in session. Will you please stand? First, allow me to introduce myself. My name is Judge Hundred Years. Some people call me Judge Dredd. Now I am from Ethiopia. Try hard, you rude boys, for shooting black people. In my court, on the beat top, cause I'm Bex. And I am the rude boy today. Who got this? Yes, sir. Rude boy Adolphus Jakes. Yes, sir. Rude boy Emmanuel Zachariah Zaki Palm. Yes, sir. George Robin Flea, President. Hmm. Adolphus James. Yes, sir. I see where you have been charged. Ten shooting with intent. Five murder charge. Six grab and flee charge. What you are not guilty. Gosh, up. Guilty or not guilty? Not guilty, sir. I don't care what they say. Take 400 years. Stand down. Emmanuel Zachariah Zakipam. Yes, sir. You've been charged. Fifteen charge of shooting intent. Fifteen murder charge. And I heard that you was the one down there in Sutton Street who tell the judge, good boys don't care. Well, this is King Street. And my name is Judge Dredd. And I don't care. Now, can you tell us more about the reasons behind your father choosing his own business and the trials and tribulations he went in the early days of his business? Well, um, back in those days, of course, there weren't 
Caribbean food wasn't readily available in the shops. Um, so people would import yams, etc., from the Caribbean. Um, and of course, the people in, in Birmingham, I think we, at the time in, of my dad's days, they had, um, they had about five or six small bakeries, Caribbean bakeries in Birmingham. Now, um, my, my dad uh, and, and his partner, they, they decided that they needed to not only start their own business, but they need to create something for the new Windrush generation because what we really wanted to make us feel comfortable was our own food. You know, everything is, is, revolves around food. You know, if, if your baby is full, you feel a little bit more relaxed. Mm-hmm. So we find that, you know, we found that in those days, in the Birmingham area, we had um, quite a few Caribbean shops, far more than we have today. And we also had these bakeries making Caribbean delicacies, things that were, were, were recognisable to the new Windrush generation. Starting his own business, what did that look like? How did he go about it? How did well, him and his partner come together? Well, what happened is, he, he always tell me that when they started, and you're going to find this incredible, they, they rented um, a, a small unit, probably no more than the side of a large garage, uh, behind a set of shops in Baywood, um, from this Jewish um, owner. And they were advised by this old Jewish gentleman not to get themselves into death. What they need to do is to buy what they can afford, and once they've made that into into products or whatever, to sell that and use the money and the profit to buy what they need again. So my dad said they started with one bag of flour, and they made sure they made the bread they wanted to make, and they sold that, and then they had enough money to buy more than one bag of flour and that is how they grew organically they, they never really like today you know, the modern way in business today is to get yourself in a lot of debt get some massive loans and invest but back in those days the banks would lend them money for a start they, they struggled to get money to buy a house hence the reason why a new system of savings were introduced amongst the, the caribbean people and it's called partner and you must have heard of that. And uh, what partner meant was that a group of people would get together and just put what they could afford to put and in a kitty. And each week, one person would have access or the draw from that kitty. And sometimes if it's a big enough group of people, they could have enough money to, to put down on the house or in my, my dad's case, to, to start a business. Now, he started the business in 1966, but he never bought his house until 1969. And, you know, talking about buying houses, Daniel, one of the things that, that occurred to me recently as I did some, some research was that most of the people from the Caribbean bought their houses within 10 years of coming to Britain. Now, I would like youngsters to imagine that. They came from a poor country and bought a house, their own house, when it was difficult to get bank loans and to get mortgages, but yet they bought their own house within 10 years of coming to Britain. And that is something, I mean, back in those days, 
home ownership amongst black people from the Caribbean was in the region of 70 to 75 percent, which was far, far higher than home ownership amongst the white population. And that is something to be incredibly proud of. Why do you think the reason for that is? Do you think that people were more unified? What, what's your thinking behind that? Well, there is that. There's a myriad of reasons. First of all, it was difficult to get places to rent. So you'd find even family members would, would club together and buy a house together and they would rent rooms to, to, the, to, to new common people. Or the family would, even the Asians, you know, they would live, you'd probably find three, four, five families living under one roof. And they would use that combined rent to pay for the house. Um, and of course, you know, like I said, they couldn't get houses to rent. In in, in London, uh, the first um, cohorts of Caribbean people that came here lived in, in bomb shelters below ground because there was no, there was, even though they were invited by the British government, there was no preparation to receive them. So when they came, they were transported from places like Tilbury Docks, straight underground bunkers that was built during the war. And gradually they would emerge and find their own places as they got employment. And, you know, and because you couldn't get room to rent from, from, from the indigenous population, you had to do what you had to do, which was to look after yourselves. And I, I think back in those days, I'm not saying it was totally utopian and it was perfect, but the truth is the population, the immigrant population was far more together than we are today. Um, you know, I would go into Derby or Sheffield or Nottingham and I would never pass a black person without saying hello. And they would never pass me without saying hello. And that's the way it was. You know, I'm not saying we didn't have our skirmishes amongst ourselves. Of course we did. But the fact is, we were far more together than we are today. And it saddens me today when I see the amount of black and black killing. That should not be. We have enough enemies without making ourselves into our own enemies. I want to move on to your next selection, which is Young, Gifted and Black by Bob and Marcia. Why did you pick this selection? A <laughs> couple of reasons. Um, firstly, this was released in the 1970s. Now, before that, we had the American Civil Rights Movement. You know, we had the rise, the rise of the Black Panther Party in America. You know, we had the, the new... Before that, you had people straightening their hair. And this, this went on for some 60, 70 years. But then suddenly, people wanted to grow Afro. They wanted to embrace their Africanism, their blackness. Yeah? And to have two Jamaican singers sing a record about being young, being gifted, being black. You know, a record that was written by Nina Simone, who herself was a revolutionary singer. You know, we had um, James Brown singing a song, I'm black and I'm proud. And this is how we felt in the 70s. We, we, we didn't want to shrink away and hide ourselves behind a wall. We wanted people to know that, listen, we're special. We're special people. Hence the word young. We're gifted and we're black. And to get that song 
at the top of the English charts, the UK charts, meant that white people bought it in their droves. And that was the most amazing thing. You know, even today I hear white people saying how they love the song. You know, and that was an amazing thing for Bob Andy and Marcia Griffiths to do. And of course, as you know, Marcia Griffiths, she then went on to join um, Bob Marley as part of the I3 with Judy Mowat and Rita Marley. And of course, the most interesting thing is was Bob Andy in the Bob and Marcia, who sadly died a couple of months ago. Bob Andy was the nephew of my grandfather. And Bob Andy would spend many of many of his uh, holidays in Jamaica at Drummond House, you know. And the rumor was that him and my uncle would sit up all night, you know, writing songs and singing it when they were when they were young boys, you know. So Bob Andy was um, a, a relative of mine, so that gave me extra pride. Here we go with young, gifted, and black Bob Andy and Marcia Griffin. I just want to go back a little bit um, because you've sp- spoken about your a little bit about your dad and how obviously your mum and dad came to be in the UK. Um, but I want to rewind a little bit with yourself and if you could tell us more about your experiences in Jamaica and how you think growing up in Jamaica has affected your mindset and how you go about things. Yeah, to be honest, you know, I'm one of the lucky ones. Um, as as the most kids of my generation that we had part of our childhood in Jamaica, you know, where we swam in the sea. I mean, where my where my house was, we could sit on our veranda and see the sea. So, you know, so we were in the sea, we were swimming in rivers, we were climbing trees, hunting birds, doing all the fun things. And Jamaica, for those who've been, you'd realize that Jamaica is covered in fruit trees. There's trees growing wild that you can get a mango or an orange or whatever of this tree. So that was our, 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 our childhood, you know, in the woods with our catapult, hunting birds, um, getting, stealing, well, normally stealing fruits of other people's land, yeah? And uh, coming to England now, at the age of 13, I also had a childhood in England. It was somewhat different, but at the same time, things that we did, were, were, you know, was also fun. Um, 
so I think uh, you know I, I experienced both both um, childhood Jamaican childhood and the and the UK childhood, and they were both enjoyable. So when you first came over to the UK, was it a culture shock? Was it, you know, did you just blend into it perfectly? Or what things were you amazed by? What things did you think were better in Jamaica or better here? Give us a little insight into what that was like um, being a teenager coming over to, to the UK. That is uh, the most interesting thing. No, I, I landed on the 20th of July. So it was the middle of the summer. So it wasn't cold. But I remember, as, we came, as I came up from London, Heathrow Airport, and I came into Birmingham, and uh, we turned down the road with my parents, which was Popular, Popular Avenue in, in, in uh, Edgebaston, and I could see this row of houses, and suppose you'd have heard this said by many Caribbean people. We didn't know there were houses, we thought there were factories, because in Jamaica, you know, you've never seen two houses joined together, you know, there's always lots of land between each house. So to see joined up houses, and in actual fact, it took me perhaps the best part of a week to realize that there wasn't a door that took me to the house next door. Cause I could imagine that that little piece that we lived in was our house, and the one to the right and the one to the left was another house. So, you know, that, that was a bit of a culture shock. But the biggest culture shock came on that Sunday afternoon when I first came, my parents took me to visit some friends um, up the next road, and it got to 6.30, and it was still bright outside. It got to 7 o'clock, 7.30, 8 o'clock, and it was still bright. Now, to understand where I'm going with this, in Jamaica, by half past five, six o'clock, it's pitch black. Now here we were sitting outside at eight o'clock at night and the sun was still shining. It got to nine o'clock and the sun was still shining. And I'm thinking, you know, there's something definitely wrong here, but I'm sure they must have noticed that something isn't right. So I'm not going to say anything <laughs> if they won't. So, so, you know, I just sat back, bit my tongue and, and, and I was not in a state of panic. I'm thinking, you know, is this judgment day? It's 10 o'clock now, and it's still bright. <laughs> what is going on? But then, you know, I, I didn't say anything. But by the following day, I realised that that was the Northern Hemisphere, and that's what it was, it was like in Britain. But in Jamaica, we, we're close to the equator, so you find that every night, basically, the sun sets at the same time. Late mm. to six o'clock, the sun set, mm -hmm. and, you know, the temperature is saying it, it just... It varies, I think it was something like two degrees across the year. So we used to something that was very um, stable and repetitive, you know, and to see something that changes, time changes, the, 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 um, the sunset changes from season to season, winter to summer was different. It, it was a bit of a shock. And uh, I'll be honest with you, by the end of the, the night, I was... Well, I was hoping that somebody would send me back to Jamaica. I just did not want to be here. And by the following week, you know, I just wanted to leave, <laughs> you know? And uh, I suppose most um, youngsters who came to the UK back in those days, you know, as a child will tell you that after a week, they were, they were willing to just get back on the plane and go back home.
What was it that made you want? What was the main, you know, couple of things that made you really want to go back home the most? The food was terrible for a start. Okay. The food was, and you know, you 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 would imagine. No, back in those days, the only takeaway you had was a chip shop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, even though it was something new um, to us, um, back in those days, you'd find that the oil that they fry the chips, you know, fry the, 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 the um, chicken in, you know, wasn't changed very often. I suppose, you know, they reckon it gave it just a certain flavour. But, you know, it was these things that we, and the standard of hygiene was something that, that took us by surprise as well. You know, we just weren't used to it, you know. I mean, my my, uh, my aunt who lived in, in, in um, a place called Chorley in Lancashire, she was the first person on her house, on her road rather, to have an indoor bathroom. She had a large bedroom and she cut a part of it off and made a, make a bathroom. And neighbours, her white neighbours, would knock on the door and said, uh, Mrs. Thompson, we, we hear that you've got a bathroom in, inside your house. Can we have a look at it, please? They've never seen one. You know, so that was a bit of a shock. You know, um, having to clock into a machine to get electricity, to get gas, was a little bit of a shock as well. We never had gas in Jamaica. We had wood, basically. So, you know, it, it was a, all these things were a bit of a shock to us. Um, apart from anything else, you know, and, and, and again, you're here in a new country. Um, you, you had no friends. And, you know, back in Jamaica on a Sunday afternoon, we would spend the whole afternoon on the beach, you know, eating sea, sea grapes, swimming in the sea, eating almonds, so, you know, eating mangoes, and there was none of this. Or we were at my, my grandfather's shop at the crossroad playing playing um, cricket or whatever, and there was none of this in the UK. So it, it was a lonely place to be, no friends, you know, you couldn't go outside, you couldn't walk the streets, and it was just um, it's a dismal place. It was an absolutely dismal place. You know, I remember the one day I went, uh, once I started school, because the school was near to my my house, I would come home for lunch, and I went down to the local shop, and I bought some cheese. I got home and realised that this cheese had gone mouldy. So I, I took the cheese back to the shop, and um, I told the shopkeeper that this cheese he sold me wasn't any good. It'd gone off, it was mouldy. And they all stood with all these um, older white people sitting in the shop looking at me as if I'd gone mad. And, you know, I kind of lost my little temper as, as a 13-year-old. And I said, do you think I'm stupid or something? Can't you see the cheese is rotten? Until they explained to me, it's blue cheese. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen blue cheese in Jamaica. <laughs> you know, we never ate cheese with mold on. <laughs> oh, and, you know, looking back, you know, I, I look at food and I feel a little bit stupid. But, you know, we've never seen blue cheese. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But those are some of the experiences, you know, the things I can remember going back to that childhood. Yeah. So before we move on to your next selection, um, I just want to ask you, did your taste in music change when from what it was in Jamaica to what it was in the UK when you first came over? Did you like certain type of music when you were in Jamaica and then when you came over, you changed the style of music or did it kind of stay the same? You know what? It never really changed because um, one of the first records I was given 
was uh, fun enough was the Prince Buster LP, and you know, so we went basically from our Jamaica. And remember, back in those days, um, Daniel, most of um, most uh, Jamaican Caribbean um, house or home would have a blue spot gramophone, yeah, and they bought records. People like um, um, Bob Marley's old producer, you know, Chris Blackwell. He started by going to Kingston, buying records, bringing them back and selling them to the new immigrant population. So we never really changed our music. We just found a way of bringing in our own music form from Jamaica, you know. Mm. Um, and then the Trinidadians in, in, in England, you know, they would bring in the Calypso music. So we never really got into the, the the British music, if you like. We still had our Caribbean music, Calypso and reggae or blue beat. So speaking of which, we're going to move on to your next selection, Breakfast in Bed by Lorna Bennett. Why did you choose this selection? Well, um, as a young boy, or as a young child from the Caribbean, we spent most of our Sundays at church in Sunday school. Now, as a young teenager, we more or less were just we just broke out of the churches and started going to clubs. Now, in Hansworth, we had three clubs. There was the Ridgeway Georgian, uh, FCF, and a club called the Santa Rosa. These are three clubs catering for the black community. Um, and, you know, we spend our Friday nights, Saturday nights, and Sunday nights in these in these clubs. And we would finish it off by going to a blues party somewhere, and breakfast in bed came. And, you know, you could... As they say, this old saying goes, you could grab a girl and you could rub on the wall <laughs> all night dancing to breakfast in bed. And even now, when I hear this um, this song, it gives me goosebumps thinking about those days. You know, you're just coming out of the church environment, um, going into clubs and enjoying that kind of um, teenage freedom that you had. So that's what that, that music and that song means to me. Here we go with Breakfast in Bed, Lorna Bennett.
What was it like when you were first introduced into the family business? What did that look like? What did that feel like? And did you want to become part of it? As a schoolboy, I enjoyed going on the vans because I didn't know the country. So I could go with the drivers and I would go to, we went as far afield as Wolverhampton. And on a Wednesday, we'd be going, we would go into Leicester. And um, I could go on the van, drive around, see more of the country. And of course, I would also ask my dad to employ my friends from school. So during the holidays, the summer holidays, Christmas, Easter holidays, sometimes two or three of my best friends from school would also work in the bakery and would go on the vans and, you know, would eat hot bread all day long and hot buns. And, you know, that was just a lot of fun. So I loved it. Um, but it was hard work. It was very, very hard work. I mean, my dad, they would start um, at five o'clock in the morning and on an early night, which was normally a Friday night, he would get home at seven o'clock at night and a late night, which was normally Wednesday. They would start at five in the morning. He would get home gone midnight, effectively Thursday morning. And they would start again at five in the next morning. And I looked at the way they worked and I thought I could never do that. And I would never, ever do that. So um, after leaving school, I went to work for a company called the Midlands Electricity Board. Um, and I decided I would work for them until I was um, probably 30 years old. And then I would leave and come back into the family business. And that's exactly what I did. Um, you know, I, I love my job at the MEB. It's time to look back and, you know, <laughs> I wish I was, I wish I'd stay there because it, it was the kind of job that most people wouldn't, who worked for the MEB would stay there until retirement. Most of the guys who I, who, um, I was apprenticed with, they worked in that job until they retired. Um, so, you know, that was the kind of work. But I, I loved, I loved my job. Um, we were called electrical cable jointers. So we worked on the, um, well, I worked on the the distribution side. So not in the house, but we worked on the big cables that take electricity from the substations to the house. And we'd also work on the biggest stuff, which was up to 11,000 volts, yeah, in the substation. So we work on the, on the big stuff. Um, and, and I loved it. Can you tell us more about your experiences with the Kuwait government? Oh, right. Okay, yeah. Well, what, what that basically was, um, and if I was to start at the beginning, quite often you hear people in the media or those who do not know, you know, um, decry the, the, the presence of foreign students in, the, in, the, in our universities. But there's a payback that Britain gets that goes unseen. Um, no, my my um, opportunity to work in Kuwait came about because their minister of electricity and water, he actually went to Edinburgh University and the, the same place as, as the chairman of the MEB. And consequently, you find that their system of electricity distribution generation was more or less based on the British version. So 
in those days they, had, they used to have power cuts in Kuwait that would last sometime two weeks sometimes more than two weeks so they had a massive problem so what they did they um, asked the French to come in assess the, what, what needed to be done and do them a report now once the French did that I don't know if it's a matter of trust but they came to Britain um, and he came back to his old university colleague, which was our chairman, and asked for help. So what happened then, the, the government then, through the DTI, Department of Trade and Industry, create uh, a division called British Electrical International, which means anybody in, around the world that had a similar system to Britain and they wanted assistance, they could call on British Electrical International. Now. Back in Sintana, that, that consisted of nine people, of which I was one. So we um, we was invited to go to Kuwait and sort this, the, the, the problems out. So the first thing that we did was to set up a training school and to train the workers, um, the local workers. And we also introduced um, other British equipment, other British equipment, um, other British equipment and um, ways of working. And um, within, I think within the first 12 months, we managed to solve the problem and power cuts became a thing of the past. Um, sadly, a couple of years later, uh, Saddam Hussein went in and smashed it all to bits. But, you know, he was exciting. Um, the next job I was offered as part of Electrical International was to go to Sri Lanka and do the same out there. But then what happened was the, the war with the Tamil Tigers started. And by then I got married, had a couple of children, and they weren't willing to take my, my young family into a war zone. I mean, the Middle East was bad enough. It was a pretty dodgy place to be back in the, in the, in the, in the late 70s, early 80s. You know, I was, I was in the Middle East when the Shah of Iran was overthrown. I was there when Ayatollah Khomeini came to power. I was there during the um, Israeli-Egyptian peace treaty, you know, all the bombings. In Be I was there when the war with Beirut started, the civil war. So, you know, it was, a, it was for a young man, it was a little bit exciting to be, you know, but when you, when you have a family, you know, it wasn't the place to be um, with your family. And it was certainly bad enough in, in, in the Middle East, but... Uh, I think it was a little bit worse in in in, uh, in Sri Lanka at the time, so that's where my relationship with the MEB ended, and I decided to come into the family business and live a much quieter life. Okay, before we get into that, we're going to move on to your next selection, Dreamland by Bunny Whaler. Tell us about this selection and why you chose it. We are effectively a people in exile, if you like, and. Like most people in exile, you know, you tend to dream of something better. You know, whether it was the, the Israelis in Egypt who dreamt of a place of their own. But, you know, as black people, we always dream of a back to Africa. And even today, that is still going on. We still dream of going back to somewhere better. You know, in our mind, we're going back to a land that is a utopia, a naverna, if you like, where, you know, as the song says, 
everything is just perfect. You know, you get your 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 your, your food from the trees. You know, you can swim in the streams, take a ride in the waterfall, and that is a dream that we have. The reality, of course, is far removed from that. But you know, when you're in exile, like we are as a people, you have to dream. You know, Marcus Garvey dreamt of back to Africa, Pan-Africanism. You know, we fast forward to the 1960s, Martin Luther King, I have a dream. You know, he wanted a better world, you know, a more equitable world. We were always dreaming as a people. And perversely, I think this dream is fine, but I think sometimes, you know, the dream just perhaps, perhaps, get us in a way to take our eyes off the reality. And, you know, if we are in Britain and we stop dreaming of another place, then we would perhaps make our life in Britain that much better. And like I said to you earlier, most Jamaicans came here to work for a short while, six, seven years, earned enough money to go back. And even though they didn't do that, they still kept dreaming of going back. And perhaps that's the reason why we have gone backwards. We have not got the amount of businesses, even the amount of shops that we had back in those days. You know, and if we see other races have come here and they've settled in and they've made a life, they're not dreaming of going back to India or Pakistan. They've made a life here. And, you know, that's what we should we should have done. And even people in Jamaica, as beautiful as Jamaica is, you still have people dreaming of going back to Africa. No, going back to Africa is one thing. But the problem with dreaming is that you have to stop dreaming sometimes. You need to put your dreams into a plan and then into an action. Otherwise, it is just a dream. And that's where we are. We, you know, we haven't really actioned those dreams. So we're still dreaming. And, and to me, by dreaming, by re remaining in that dreamlike state, hoping for a nirvana, hoping for a utopian place that perhaps doesn't exist, we are missing the reality of our existence as it is. So, but dreamland was by Bonnie Whaler. The, the very first version I heard was Marcia Griffiths. But I chose the Bonnie Whaler version and I will let you know why later as we go in the interview. Here we go with Dreamland Bonnie Whaler.
us more about you returning to the family business. What was that like? What were the changes that you made? And how did your father feel about you making changes? Well, <laughs> the funniest thing is, um, I decided I would leave my, my work at the MEB and come to the family business. But before I did, I would come um, to the bakery in the evenings, in the afternoons, and there was an area upstairs. I started knocking walls down and stuff, making an office. And my dad took the view that he's never had an office, so why do I want an office? And I said, well, because I'm coming to do a different kind of business to what you did. I said, I, I respect what you did. And, uh, you know, to me, what they've done was so phenomenal back in the 1960s. You just cannot believe, you know, that these people, within a short time of coming to the UK, they actually created a business. It's absolutely phenomenal. But then I wanted to take that business to another level. Now, one of the catalysts for me leaving my old employment to come into this job was when I lived in Kuwait, um, there was about six or seven people there of Jamaican heritage. Um, one of these guys, um, Junior, his name was Junior Johnson. He was one of the guys that managed Kuwait Airport. And he came from London. And when he found out that my family actually owned a bakery, he kept saying to me that we need to supply bread to London because they just cannot get decent hard oil bread in London. So I thought, hmm, I'll come back. And that's one of the first thing I would do. And that was one of the first thing I did was to open up a route in London. And we grew that route. Then we opened up a, a route in, in, a, in Bristol, Nottingham, Derby, um, East Midlands, you know. Um, then we moved up to north, up to um, Yorkshire and Manchester area, Huddersfield, Bradford. So that's how we got all the spread of our wings. Now, um... In 1997, I was in Toronto, and as is my way, I normally tend to visit the local supermarkets, local shopping areas to see what is happening on the ground. And I realized that the in Canada, the shopping you had the great big shopping malls, and what you had effectively was a large supermarket surrounded by smaller shops, yeah? And I thought to myself, this is the North American concept. And whatever happens in America will eventually happen in Britain. And I came back and I thought, well, where would this lead us? And I realized that this would lead to us having more supermarkets and less high street shops. Now, back in those days, you know, today we you, you did a Tesco or Sainsbury's and Morrison's, whatever. Anywhere you turn, you've got one of these supermarkets. But what people don't understand is that these establishments are not as old as you might think. You know, when I was a youngster, I remember when the very first Asda opened in the Bullring in Birmingham. No, Morrison's was a northern store, mainly in Bradford. And I remember the first... Morrison's tour that opened in Birmingham and you're going back to probably 
less than 15 years ago, right? But back in 1997, I imagine that there will come a time when people will be doing the bulk of their shopping in the supermarkets for convenient reasons. You can park in one place and buy everything you want, you know? And I remember coming back and, and, and saying to, to, to our team back here, this is where we need need to be. Um, of course, there was some resistance, but I, I kind of dug my my heels in, you know, and I went out knocking doors. I remember the first time I visited Tesco, I spent I spent half a day trying to convince the Tesco buyer that he should they should invest or look at least look towards what I call the ethnic market, and he said to me that there was no demand for this kind of food. And he says, there might be a small demand for Indian food or Chinese food, but there will never be a demand for Caribbean food or African food, you know? And he just would not entertain me. Well, luckily, fast forward, we now supply to Morrison's, Tesco, Sainsbury's and Asda. And this is where the bulk of our sales comes from. What was the pivotal thing that you said to him to convince him that there was a demand then? Because there's the bit in the middle, the really important bit in the middle that you just missed out on. <laughs> well, I did manage to convince him. I did not convince him. What, what happened? <laughs> he just could not back down. And um, what, I, what I then did, a couple of years later, they launched a programme called um, Local Suppliers which meant that if they had a, a store in a certain area, for example, if they had a store in Stafford, for example. Now, Staffordshire, a unique product called the Staffordshire Oath Cake. Now, Staffordshire Oath Cake isn't available anywhere else in the country. In Wales, you know, you, you, you had um, the Welsh cake. That wasn't uh, available anywhere else in the country. So what they realised is that local communities have local needs that is specific to them. So they embarked on a, on a program of local sourcing. Now, they were building a new store in Aston, a district of Birmingham, and I had a meeting with the then local buyer who was based in Cardiff and persuaded him to allow us to supply this local store in, in, in Aston. So once we got into the local store, by then, Tesco, and this is the amazing thing, Tesco had gone to a Jewish bakery based in Billingate Market in London to make hard oil bread for them. Now, they have no history of making hard oil bread, and they was making absolute rubbish. They got a couple of um, black people who, who perhaps had no knowledge of how to make hard oil bread, but they employed them and they were making rubbish bread. So what I then did was to go into London where the biggest market was, and I persuaded the store managers, in those days we supplied direct to stores, so I persuaded the store managers to buy from us. I, you know, I introduced myself as Tesco's supplier of hard oil bread, which was a bit of a lie, um, but nevertheless it worked, and they all bought from me. Um, later on, I was invited to a meeting um, at Tesco headquarters by the buyer, and uh, 
he 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 said, well, you know, I've um, Moles gone behind his back, and, and I'm supplying uh, sixteen Tesco stores when he only gave me one, uh, <laughs> and you know, he wanted to know why I did that, and you know, my response was, well, it's selling and it's selling very well, so what is your problem? And he just shook my hands and said, you know, well done, <laughs> and that was us in Tesco. <laughs> Um, but prior to that, we, we had got into, as as I recognized the demand a lot longer or long before Tesco did. So we got into Asda and then Tesco. What a journey and some great, um, great wisdom there about how to go about things. Like if there's a wall in front of you, you just find a way around it. I want to move on to your next selection, 400 Years, The Whalers. Absolutely. Why did you choose this one? Bonnie Whaler, in my opinion was the real rebel of the three. You know, you had Bob Marley, Bonnie Whaler, and Peter Tosh. But I always believed that Bonnie Whaler was the real rebel of the group. No, I, I said I was born in Brighton District, and I went to infant school in the next district, which is called Belmont. Now, each morning as we go to school, we would pass this young boy sitting on the wall playing his guitar and singing his songs. Now, I had no idea who this young boy was, but we always stopped and watched him. Amazingly, I found out later on that Peter Tosh came from that district. And not only that, but Peter Tosh's mother, Mrs. McIntosh, actually went to the same church as, as my family. My grandfather was a verger. So I've always tried to convince myself that that young boy sitting on that wall was Peter Tosh. You know, and even when I go to Jamaica, I always go back to my old district and I pop round to his district and I visit his, his mausoleum, you know, he's buried in, in, in the front garden of his family house. You know, his family still lives there, you know, and... Um, we're all from the same area. So I'd like to believe that Peter Tosh was the boy I always see sitting on the wall playing his guitar. He might not have been, but for my for my um, memory, if you like, you know, I would love it to have been him. What a great introduction to a great song. Here we go with 400 Years, The Wailers. 400 years.
Can you leave us with um, an insight into what Sunrise Bakery provides today? So you can let us, let, let us know about some of the products that you offer and where people can get hold of them. Well, um, if anyone visit our website, which is www.sunrisebakery.co.uk, you will see a lot on the website about our history, our ethos, you know, the charities we support, etc. Um, and you will see about the products. Also, on that site, if you put your postcode in the store locator, it will take you to your nearest store. Now, like I said, we, we supply we supply um, stores in, in most of the major cities in, in England, you know, whether you're in Manchester, Bradford, Huddersfield, uh, um, Leeds, London, Bristol, Gloucester, you'll find Sunrise Baking products, as you will in Derby um, and Nottingham, you know, and Leicester. Um, and we also supply the supermarkets, and they also uh, are based around the country. We supply, we, we supply into... into those that are located in an area with the high Caribbean demographics. Yes, yeah? so any one of those areas, if you put your 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 um, your uh, postcode in, it will take you to your nearest store. Now, what we've also done, we launched, we've just launched a range of cakes that is available um, only in Morrison's, um, currently in in slices format. Uh, but we, we we have been asked recently to produce some loaf cakes for Morrison's. So we're trying to branch out um, into the cakes, you know, not only regular cakes, but also vegan cakes. And um, my son, my eldest son, who is um, my marketing uh, manager, yeah, and the brains in, in, in technology, we, he's currently working on a uh, retail site of our, of our website so that we can actually sell online. Um, but we also, our products are also available online from the supermarkets through their own online shops. So you can either get our products from the, the physical shop or the online shop. So I'm vegan, so I want to know what these vegan cakes are that you're t- telling us about. Well, what, what, what we did... Um, we, we we have a, a range of vegan cakes. At the moment, we, we're only looking at three flavors, so four flavors at the moment. We're looking at banana, and what we tend to do is to use real banana. In fact, all our cakes, we do not use um, artificial flavorings. You know, our banana cake consists of real banana, or pineapple and coconut, coconut and pineapple, as it says on the package. You know, we do a ginger cake, which is, um, in my opinion, better than Matt Vitti's version, yeah? And and we also do a fruit cake, yeah? And uh, again, all our products have natural products. We just do not use artificial flavoring, whether in our normal regular cakes or our vegan cakes. We do not use artificial flavoring. So, which is your favorite product that you sell? Are you, you, are you asking me to tell you which of my ch- my children is my favourite? I can't do that. You know? I love them all. Like, I love all my children equally. I love all my products equally. Okay, so it's not a favourite that you do, you sneak out at the end of the day. It's like, I'm taking this home with me. All of them depends on what mood I'm in. 
Okay. okay. So I, I love them all. You know, when I when I was at school, uh, me and my friend, me and my friends, when I was at school, I remember we used to make a small bread about four hundred grams in size, in size, and there was a shop down the road. Um, Cass's name was, and he he was the first one to sell Jamaican ginger beer. So we'd buy Jamaican ginger beer and cheese, and we'd get the, the bread straight out of the oven. Slice it down lengthwise and put the cheese inside, and that was our lunch. You know, and it still takes me back. And you know, the one day I was um, I was doing a presentation to a group of bankers, um, some from from TSB Barclays and uh, mainly Goldman Sachs, and um, I, I took one of our buns to demonstrate to them what we made. And this Asian girl. Uh, who worked, I think it was for Barclays Bank, she said to me, I recognize your product, she says. When I was a young girl, I used to get it in the shop and I would cover it in butter and put it underneath the toaster. And as, as I ate it, the butter would just run on the side of my cheeks. <laughs> and I said to her, that's exactly how I used to eat it when I was a 13, 14, 15 year old, you know? So, so these things bring back memory, for lots of people, mm. and not just black people, you know, for a, a young Asian girl to tell me that that's how she remember eating our product as well. That was absolutely amazing. I will definitely be leaving the links in the description so you can go check out Sunrise Bakery where it is near you, where you can get hold of their products and find out more about their new range of cakes as well, especially those vegan ones. Like I said, you're making me hungry. Um, we've gone well, well, well over the hour today, but you've been sharing so much great information. I didn't want to um, stop you at all, but we're going to finish off with your final selection, which is Burning and Looting the Whalers. Why did you choose this selection? Yeah, Burning and Looting the Whalers. The first thing you would have noticed is that my last three songs featured a member of the Whaler, which is Bunny Whaler, um, Peter Tosh, and, um, and 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 Bob and and Bob Bob's voice, yeah. So we had we've got uh, Bob Marley, Bonnie Whaler, Peter Tosh. Each of these voices, these distinctive voice, distinctive voice, and each of those records. Now, my very first LP, the very first LP I bought was Catch a Fire by the Whalers. I then bought Burning and follow that with African herdsmen. Now, burning, that summarizes the frustration that we sometimes feel. And it's not surprising that if you look at the American Civil War, or not Civil War, but rather American Civil Rights Movement back in the 1960s, you would have found that when the blacks have been ill-treated by the police or the, the civil guards or whatever, they tend to burn, you know? Their frustrations, burn their frustrations. You know, we did that back in the 1980s in Birmingham, in Liverpool, in Bristol, in in Brixton. You know, we've done this, we burned places down, we did it in Hansworth, you know? And if we saw the brutal murder of George Floyd last year, You'd see when the people are angry, this is what we do. And, you know, one of the lines in the song that I love, he says, 
we are going to burn our frustrations tonight. And we're going to burn all illusions tonight. Let the roots man take a blow. And those songs are as relevant back when they were first um, produced as they are today. You know, and to have the fantastic writing. To me, these are some of the best reggae LPs, some of the best music that has ever, ever been written. And to have it produced by Lee Scratch Perry, one of our great reggae record producer. You know, to me, there's something about this song. Nobody, whether you are black or white, can listen to this music without feeling uplifted. You know, and I remember it is not it is not just for black people. It's for anybody who needs that feeling of upliftment. And I remember when I lived in Kuwait, there was a hotel called the Gulf Hotel. And every Thursday night, there would be a session kept at the hotel. And this was kept by Palestinians. And the Palestinian people were playing reggae music because that was the music of the oppressed. And that's how they saw it. You know, when we had apartheid in South Africa, reggae music ran out from the Shabins in, in Soweto, the people of the oppressed. You know, when we had the, the, the Rhodesian blacks, now Zimbabwean, fighting for their basic human rights, you know, when you had an apartheid system that was transferred from South Africa and adopted into Rhodesia, where black people oppressed, the black Zimbabwean soldiers said when they were in the jungle fighting and when they were losing and when they felt depressed, they sang Bob Marley and the Whalers songs and they felt uplifted. They felt another drive, if you like, to fight even harder for their independence. So, you know, this is the beauty of reggae music. The beauty of reggae music. It is poetic. And, you know, we're singing about some very, very bad things that happened to us. But we sing it in such a way that you can dance to it. You can dance to it. You can reflect on what the words are saying. And that is one of the reasons why reggae music is so widely loved across the world. You know, I don't think there's many countries. I've heard reggae music played by Czechoslovakians. I've heard reggae music played by Japanese, played by French, you know, played by people in South America. And reggae music has encircled the Gulf, the entire globe rather, because reggae music is the music of the downtrodden, the music of the oppressed. And nobody does that better than the Whalers. Nobody. The Whalers were fantastic at that. And that is one of the reasons why I'm always proud to say that this is the music that formed my very soul. Reggae music and the Whalers. Wow, what an amazing way to finish the show and an amazing introduction to a wonderful works by the Whalers. Thank you so much for being a guest on today's show and all of the wisdom that you shared. Thank you so, so much. Uh, make sure everybody you're back here next Wednesday for another episode and a brand new guest. 
As always, have a wonderful week. I'm going to leave you with the sounds of burning and looting the whalers. As always, blessed love. Love.